How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's been exciting here in Ojai, land of the oak chaparral, rural, I, rural lands, and wide open. I thought it was just the land of strip malls and the same weather all no, the time. No, it's no, California, no. Well, yeah. What, what's going it, on? What's going it on? It is the same weather all the time. We have had, uh, we're at 60% of the rain, and February is usually oh. our rainiest month, so we have hardly had any rain, which is not good. Kind of a drought. Yeah, it's not good. And, um... So I live on the back of my fence. I can see about, oh, I don't know, 20,000 acres of wide open brushland and mountains. Yeah, there's mountains and, well, small hills, really, oak-covered hills. And there's... um, Really? Yeah, there's uh, little rivers. I imagine that you're kind of semi-urban, but you're kind of out in the hinterlands Well, on both sides of my house are houses, and I'm in a little neighborhood that butts up against the Lake Casitas Recreation Area, but between my house and the lake is probably three or four miles of wild lands. And there's deer and coyotes and and California buzzards, and it's it's amazing. And And one of the (laughs) great... I saw a video. Yeah, you sent, I sent me a, you video. a video. I'm shocked. Uh, yeah. So uh, my neighbor calls me. I let the me. cat out of the bag. You did. You did. <laughs> my neighbor calls me last night. Hey, Dave. Uh, one of my uh, goats got killed by a mountain lion last night. What? And uh, we're really sad about it. You know, we have four goats. And now it's down to three. So um, just telling you, you better... Uh, Keep your dog inside, maybe for a while. I see him next door all the time. They're next door. And he has chickens, and I love the sound of the chickens and the goats. There's goats next yeah. door? And a goat was killed? Slaughtered? He has four goats, and it was murdered and dragged. You can see the drag marks and half eaten. My other neighbor caught the puma walking by his stairs on his ring door cam. And you can see that video on our website, paleonerds.com. The puma? Concolor, which is the name for a mountain. Well, the real name is cougar, but they're also called mountain lions. Tigre Montes. Si. I think. Uh, Yo quiero. Yeah. I'm not, <laughs> I don't think you know. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> no lo sé. No lo sé. I, I don't Est- know. Yeah. Muy estupido. You know, I've always known that there are cougars in this area, and there are black bears, and keep your dogs inside at night and all that stuff. And I'm not afraid of Arthur, my dog. He, he'll he turn and snap at a Great Dane. And, you know, if, if my dog happened to be out and the puma happened to come here. I hear him oh, right now. Yeah, there he is. There's Arthur. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God, he's getting dragged by a, by a cougar. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to know. Wow. It's great to know that there are apex predators around and about, and that us humans have not completely destroyed our planet yet. A little reminder that nature still lurks in your very backyard yeah. there. And, you know, but, but uh, you live in people get attacked every now and then. Are you, are you nervous? I mean, no, you could get no, killed. No, I'm not nervous. Uh, but this cat looks no. to be, I would say, what, 130 pounds? I mean, it's a pretty big, it, it is a pretty big cat. The goat was 100 pounds. Is your neighbor, like, all pissed off and wants to kill the cougar now? No, or what? he's sad and... You know, I I mentioned <laughs> my, there's, there's Arthur. On cue. There's Arthur. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mentioned that they were here first, and uh, they oh, they wow. deserve to be protected. And 
I think in California, usually when this happens, they'll trap them and move them if there is a danger to livestock, people, pets. That's what they've done in the past in Southern California. So uh, what's the genus and species of an American cougar? Well, you know, funny you should mention that. Uh, well, the cougar Whoa. is a puma concolor. Okay. Uh, the genus is puma, species, concolor. Okay. Subfamily, felinae. Family, felidae. Felidae. Suborder, filiformia. Order, carnivore. Carnivora mammalia cordata animalia. There you yeah. go. There you That's go. That's backwards. I just read it backwards. Yeah. Yeah. I there's some mispronunciations in there, I think, but I, I, I I'm not gonna catch on but it. But here's the weird thing is here I am excited about this apex predator. When I was living in your town in Ketchikan, you can't put mm -hmm. the garbage out at night because there are bears that will get into your garbage. You gotta put it out the morning of. Yeah, yeah, no, actually, so today is trash day, and we have to put it, I have to keep mine uh, underneath my studio all locked yeah, up and stuff, yeah. so the bears won't get it. But you know, every now and then, there actually have been a few cougars sighted, sighted in southeast Alaska, and one was seen here in Ketchikan by, actually, my bandmate, Shauna, says she saw one right here in town. Really? So, yeah, they do range up this way, and with climate change, I think we're going to see lots of animals moving around, so you may not expect them in the... Uh, rainforest but they have been spotted here in southeast alaska as well they're the second largest cat next to the jaguar and they range from the yukon to the southern andes in south america there you go wow yeah hey speaking of mammals oh man do we have uh you know it's it's wild cueing you yeah, thank you. When when we uh, when you give me, by the way, thank you very much for the the notes and the bullet points on our on our I guest try, today. Man. Well, no, you do a great job, and I, I'm appreciative of the homework. And this guy is prolific. He's written thirty books, right? Two hundred fifty. Thirty plus, I think yeah. thirty five books. Two hundred plus yeah. research papers. So tell me how you met him, and let's uh, just give him a call. Actually, it's a case of I know of him. Oh. We've uh, heard him talked about uh, via uh, actually one of our previous guests, Jingmei O'Connor, was a student of his. Oh. Uh, we're talking about Donald Prothero, who was a professor at Occidental College for many, many years. I believe he's emeritus now, but uh, we've communicated uh, via emails over the years, but I've never actually met him, never out talked and to him on the phone, prior, but he's used some of my art, and he also helped out of the California map. Oh, cool. That I cool. did. And prior to this map. interview, you sent me a picture of him with Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye in the same photo, so yeah. that was pretty, yeah, you're... made me a, a fan. <laughs> well, hey, let's call him All right. Donald Prothero. Call him, Dave. Come on, Dave. <laughs> Call him. Hey, Dave, meet Donald Prothero, paleontologist, geologist, professor emeritus at Occidental College, prolific author, and just all around cool guy. And I suspect he's a paleo nerd like us. So anyways, nice to meet you here, Don, in virtual reality. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, hey, Don. It's great. You're uh, prolific, your body of work, papers and books. It's absolutely stunning. But the question is, are you a paleo nerd and how did you become one? Yeah, I admit it. I'm a paleo nerd. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, one of those kids that got hooked on dinosaurs at age four and never grew up. Wow. So by the time I was in high school, I was researching where to go to college and what I would do. And I'm probably the only one in my high school class who knew exactly what he wanted to do since, uh, since he began his schooling. 
but I did this back in the early 60s, uh, through the late 60s when I was a student, and uh, that wasn't such a trendy thing back then. I mean, I was the only kid I ever met through K through 12 who liked dinosaurs. Should have talked to Ray. Because yeah. Ray was the exact same thing at age four. <laughs> and I was, you know, I, I talked talk about dinosaurs to other kids. They didn't care. No kids went through dinosaur phases in those age. And uh, so uh, now it's the thing. Everybody goes through a dinosaur phase around 10 years old. But it was not that way then. Don, we, we were kind of special. And actually, you know, we are about, we're we're pretty much with, within a week of each other That's being right. born. We're the same age exactly. So happy birthday, man. Happy birthday to you, too. So, yeah. Happy birthday. We are, uh, well, you're 67, I will soon be 67, but yeah, way back in the 50s, we were born in 1954, you right. and I, within a week of each other. I remember cereal box dinosaurs and collecting dinosaur cards and just but being very hungry for anything paleo, oh, yeah. but yeah, the difference now is that the kids have got Jurassic Park, but anyways, you were telling us your story. You're, you grew up in California. Your dad was an illustrator and your yes. mom was an artist? Right. They, my dad worked for Lockheed his entire career, starting with building planes during World War II, wow. and then uh, they discovered he had art training. So they set up with him and two other guys, the first technical illustration program in, uh, in Lockheed. And so his wow. job was to draw manuals and, uh, you know, sketches in 3D and any kind of thing. It wasn't engineering drawing. They took the blueprints and turned them into three-dimensional isometric drawings and all sorts of other renderings. Uh, and eventually did big giant multi-volume proposals for airplanes that Lockheed was trying to win contracts for, but never, not always built. But he worked on every aircraft that Lockheed ever did from his start of his career. The P-38 Lightning. Uh, he was actually on the assembly line. We have a picture of him on the assembly line. No wow. way. And then they pulled him from the assembly line. And then of course the rest of his time he was drawing aircraft. Uh, but yeah, the 38 P-38 was in production when he was hired by them. Wow. And so uh, he has a long tradition. So he, but he was a fine artist to begin with, of course. So really? he was doing uh, oils on the side and watercolors on the side. He was very serious about photography. So he had his own dark room in our house, which I, he trained me in dark room work back when it was all chemicals and all film. <laughs> wow. I still know those wow. things, although I probably never use them again. And, but the thing I got most of him, I, I was starting to get as an artist when I was young too. I was drawing really, really? sophisticated dinosaurs and animals at age four. But then I sort of got hooked on the topic itself and never actually continued my art skills. So yeah, Do you have any of those drawings? Uh, yeah, they're in a file somewhere. I don't remember where I last. Oh, oh, you have to get them out for this episode. <laughs> we would love to see they're in the those, garage. But... I'll have to dig out the box. But yeah, I was, I was. they were very proud of my art skills. They thought I would be a great artist, but I didn't really focus on that. But I learned, you know, hand drawing. I learned uh, painting. I learned sculpture, all these things. They made sure I got exposed to. And of course, art history as well. Besides your drawings, do you have any of your father's drawings of like P-38s? And Yeah, yeah, that? yeah. We've got a few in different places. Wow. Uh, we they, they, He didn't keep very much. A lot of it wasn't his to keep. But for example, when he, uh, the Lockheed was competing with Boeing back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s for the uh, SST that the U.S. was going to build. Right. I remember that. And uh, he was uh, the man who coordinated the entire like 50 volume uh, proposal. This is how big it had to be back in those days. You know, Boeing and Lockheed wow. both built flying prototypes and they you know, built a complicated thing which described every aspect of the plane and he kept like the summary volume which had all these beautiful colored renderings of the plane and it's uh, 
flying positions. Well, that oh. must have been amazing because this is before the days of your uh, Photoshop and your oh, yeah. uh, c computer pens. You had to do it on drafting tables. Oh, yeah. yeah, he had. Wow. He could do, uh, you know, uh, uh, airbrushing the real, original way, not the digital way. Uh, he was very good at all sorts of types of graphics. And, and then when he retired early because he worked with one company through his whole life uh, from age 18 or 19 until until uh, he retired at 55 because he had that many years seniority with the company. And then he basically spent the last 30 years of his life doing freelance art. Uh, wow. Whenever he felt like it, he would do jobs for various clients. Uh, and, but he was getting to the point where in the, in the 80s, in the 90s, especially, uh, he was getting too old to do it and everything was going digital. And he was not going to turn him teach an old dog new tricks. So it was sort of a good thing. He, <laughs> he got out of it when he did because he could never compete with everyone who does it digitally now. Well, you know, one of the things that Dave was alluding to, Don, how many books have you written? I'm at uh, 48 and counting right now. I'm finishing <laughs> one uh, this um, semester and wow. trying to get it off to the publisher before the summer starts. And then I've got a contract for another one. So what was the first book that you ever wrote or the first research paper that you ever wrote that began your prolific career in all these literary? And scientific papers yeah. galore. Yes. Yeah, yeah. My first, my first scientific paper, believe it or not, was published in Nature, uh, which is oh. about the highest notch you can make. But it was because it was sort of an odd topic. I, for my master's thesis, I'd done all these Jurassic mammals that were in the American Museum collection, and it sat in 10 years. Uh, no one studied them until my grad advisor pointed it out. I jumped on the project. That became my master's thesis. But even before that was published in the American Museum Naturalistic Bulletin, uh, there were a bunch of fossil lizards in the same collection from the Coma Bluff, Wyoming, and you know, late Jurassic. And no one had studied them. So I had them with me. And I was up at Harvard, actually, looking at other things than those was addition to looking at those lizards. And I stumbled on Dick Estes, the late Dick Estes now, uh, who was the world's expert on Jurassic lizards and so on. And so he uh, and I sat down and looked at them together at Harvard. And, and then he agreed we should write it up. And we sent it to Nature. And it was published faster than any other thing around, because <laughs> Nature doesn't mess around. Wow. And the thing that was funniest about the review for that paper is that it mentions, of course, it was discovered like a decade earlier. And the Nature uh, editor said, well, why did this take so long to publish? And we were laughing our heads off, because paleontology is notorious for 10, 15, 20-year waits for anything that's published. Right, we are not right. used to the fast pace of Nature volume, where most of their stuff is molecular biology or astrophysics or something, which is published in a few weeks, and it's uh, done very fast. So. Well, you're, you're an expert on so very many things. Have you been on Jeopardy? You even got <laughs> won some money from uh, What's-His-Toes? They win... win Ben Stein's money, yep. Was it Ben Stein? Ben Stein, yeah. In Jimmy Kimmel was still on the show. Yeah. But yeah, generally, when I ask other people, I knew you were going to be on the show. Uh, people categorize you as you're a mammal guy. Yeah. You started out with mammals in nature and also that you're a rhinoceros guy mm -hmm. in many ways. You've done a lot of work on rhinoceros. That's right. But the North American rhinoceros. North right? American rhinos. Yep. So did rhinos evolve in North America or uh, did they start out here? Or what? Yeah, the rhinos and their relatives were bouncing back and forth between here in Asia, mostly China and Mongolia all through their early evolution. So we have that's the same kinds of things in China and Mongolia in the early Middle Eocene. And so uh, it's pretty clear they just walked back and forth anytime they wanted. In some cases, they almost look like the same species. And the mm -hmm. oldest one we have now is the one that comes in the John Day, uh, late Eocene, uh, or actually late Middle Eocene. Uh, it's called Telotaceros rodinskii. And it was actually published in a volume I put together and edited and published in 1989 by a good friend of mine, Bruce Hansen, up at Berkeley. 
Uh, and so he had been working on this collection of the John Day and finally got around. Now that's the John Day fossils in Oregon. Yeah, well, this right. is the, the older part of the John Day unit called the Clarno Formation, which is uh, late Middle Eocene to early Late Eocene. And so he had um, he had these, no one had ever really saw, saw what was going on with these rhinos, but since I had worked on the rhinos myself, I was able to help him a bit. And so he was able to solve and decide it was a distinct animal. It wasn't the same as some Asian things that were closely related to it. So our oldest North American rhino is about 40 million years old, and its closest relatives are in Asia, is the short answer there. So does that indicate that there was a, the land bridge was open it would in have the to be. Yeah, It would have yeah. to be. But that's not a surprise. There's a lot of interchange between a lot of other mammals, right. uh, in the Eocene especially. This is a period when we had still a greenhouse climate. So the polar regions were all you know, with crocodiles and, and other kinds of jungle mammals and all the rest. So it wasn't very cold, and it was not that hard to get across. So the Bering Bridge must have been a bit of a highway, or at least for some animals. We had the same thing with all the big bronotheres, the big rhino-like things with the paired bony uh, knobs right. on their heads, uh, which aren't rhinos, but they're related to the same group. Uh, those come back and forth between Asia and North America during the Middle Eocene as well. Uh, so there's a bunch of things that do that. And then eventually they stopped doing it very often, although we still get Eurasian things coming into North America off and on. Rhinos are good travelers, apparently. <laughs> okay, I have they a... get around, yeah, except uh, for that woolly rhinoceros. We never found a woolly rhinoceros That's here right. in North America. Not, yeah, I see, so the Ice Age uh, rhinos never made it back to North America after they vanished from here about five million years ago. So I have an even and odd question. Even toed ungulates are artiodactylia. Right? Artiodactylia, right. Right. And odd toed are perissodactyla. Perissodactyla. Right? Perissodactyls. Okay. So even are like giraffes and hippos right. and muskox and, right. all right, and bison. Right. Okay. And odd are horses and rhinos and zebras. Okay. So Correct. why? Zebras, why? Dave. Zebra, Dave. They call them zebra. zebra. Dude, uh, they call British them zebra. zebra, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Ray, I got okay, that right. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> uh, Don, Ray's always correcting me because I usually mess up the pronunciation okay. of everything from I, archipelago, archipelago. Oh, God, here we go. Zebra, <laughs> I, I've never heard zebra Yeah, before, No, zebra is no, the, the British, British say that, especially yeah. in really? South Africa. Yeah. So. so let's That's get back absurd. to my question. Why are these animals, which kind of, if you were at the zoo, you'd find them in the same section. They're not in the reptile house, all right? Right, right. Why do they have two different style of hooves, two toes and three toes, and odd and even? Why? Well, what's the what's the evolutionary reason? Yeah, they're they're known from the early Eocene. For example, the earliest peristodactyls, which are the earliest relatives of horses, rhinos, and tapirs, a third living group of peristodactyls. They start out with a foot that is basically symmetrical along the middle digit of the middle finger or the middle toe, for example. And so that's why they will have either one toe or three, because their weight is mostly born on the middle toe, digit three. And sometimes if they're a horse, they're only got that middle toe. And if right. they're a rhino, of course, they have the two side toes. So they have digits two, three, and four. Uh, and so that is their symmetry of their foot. And once they get sort of locked into that pattern, their foot is built that way, their hand and their foot, I should say, is built that way, then they stay it. And then everybody else doesn't modify it. It's the fundamental sort of, uh, you know, building blocks uh, that they start with in evolution. They don't have reason to change it. Whereas the earliest artidactyls, which also occur in the same early easing beds uh, in, the, in places like uh, Wyoming and elsewhere, the mm -hmm. symmetry of their foot is between digit three, uh, your middle finger, and digit four, which is your uh, ring finger. And so okay. they're always symmetrical and pair of toes on one side, pair of toes on the other side. Oh, okay. So, so that means if you're a pig or a hippo or a peccary, you have all four digits. 
And if you are uh, most of the rest of them, you got camels and, and all the ruminants, all the rest, you are down to two digits, right? They're cloven hoofed. And so that's it. They start with this basic symmetry and the basic arrangement of their foot and their hand and the earliest fossils we have. And of course, they don't modify it. Once they start doing it, the stays all the way. And it was first recognized by Richard Owen in 1840, the guy who named Dinosauria. He realized that all the rhinos and horses and camels could be told apart by their foot symmetry. And then likewise, all the uh, even-toed mammals could be as well. But why? Why? What's the evolutionary or, or what's the reason? Well, we don't know exactly. But the idea is once animals get into a sort of a building block plan or a body plan, uh, get locked into doing certain things early in their evolution, unless there's a strong reason to modify it, they don't. They keep it. And so right. what we find that most of the time is that you know groups that have a certain building block or certain type of structure and their earliest relatives will carry that on all the way through. And that's one of the reasons these groups have been recognized for a long time and since uh, 100 and some years now, because they really do stay stereotyped in that way, at least as their feet and their uh, hands do. But there's no reason to have uh, over, I mean, running over rocks or, right. or no, being in a marsh. There's no difference. No, there's, there, the symmetry of the foot really doesn't affect that. It's what they do with their side toes that can be important. So animals, for example, like pigs and a variety of other animals use their side toes so they don't just, uh, sink into marshy terrain, or at least they capable right. of that. And hippos, of course, are always in marshy terrain, so they keep the basic four-toed plan. But uh, then if they're becoming specialized runners, then they start losing their side digits, which uh, you can watch in the evolution horse. You've all seen the diagrams, the evolution horse, the side digits get smaller and smaller right, as right. all the weight is borne more and more on that central digit, the digit three. So right. the horse is using his middle digit, which is the one you give the flip the bird with. So a horse, a horse <laughs> is always flipping his middle finger at you. <laughs> right. I, I like to think of it that they're running around going, hey, so are, where do elephants fall in that? Uh... No. Uh, one time back in the 90s, yeah, we were debating where elephants fit along with their other relatives. Like, they uh, fit with manatee. us. Don't they have five? Don't they have no, five? They, yeah, five. Yeah, that's the primitive pattern all, all terrestrial animals have. Uh, they modify them by making the, the finger and toe bones very short and stumpy. So their weight bearing is, is spread out of our very short limb. But other than that, they're, they're not really as closely related to hoof mammals as we thought. They certainly don't have any specializations of the foot like both perissodactyls and artiodactyls do. Instead, they do their own thing. And then since about the mid-1990s, molecular evidence again and again and again showing elephants aren't related to the other groups of hoof mammals. And in fact, really? they're, they're a group called the Afrotheria now recognized, uh, which ah. includes not just the elephants and things we already knew were related to them, like the uh, manatees and sea cows and the uh, hyraxes, which are close relatives, but ah. also a bunch of other things only found in Africa, like aardvarks and golden moles and tendrex. They all come <laughs> out on the molecular trees over and over again as close relatives. So, I mean, we knew that That's sea cows and manatees were related to elephants because they have a bunch of skeletal similarities. So the next time you're looking at a manatee, it's a very close relative of the elephants. And the primitive ones look very much like primitive elephants. That's absolutely amazing. We were talking about desmostilians with Gabe Santos, yes. and They're some of the desmostilian analysis puts them maybe closer to the parasodactyls and not uh, the elephants. There's debate about that, but the, uh, so the debate. Really work on okay. desmostilians is pretty much concluded they are also tethytheres, or at least aphrotheres. Uh, so there's still debate about that. They're such a weird group of animals uh, that it's tough because the teeth don't look like any other group. Although right. it turns out up there in northern Washington, just across from British Columbia is where they found behemotops which is the right. oldest known desmostilian, which has teeth that looks very much like primitive sea cow or primitive elephant. Aha. Uh -huh. Hmm. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no, my head is spinning. Right there on the Straits of Juan de Fuca in the, in the oh, Clallam, I think, no. is where they found is it. Is there yeah. anything you don't know about? <laughs> well, I've been working uh, on fossil mammals for about 40 years, so I've learned a few things. 
and I analyzed most of those marine sequences that have important fossils in them all up and down the Oregon, Washington, California coast, and then did one unit called the Souk Formation over in British Columbia, uh, right on Victoria Island, actually, that is also interesting. It has some of the more bizarre Desmostilians in it as well. a question about magnetostratigraphy. Magnetostratigraphy. Right. How do you say it? Magnetostratigraphy. Magnetostratigraphy. Yep. Right? Thank yep. you. Oh, there we go. Ma ma magnetostratigraphy. You got it. So I did a little uh, rabbit hole Googling, and can you confirm that in the last 5 million years, there have been 22 reversals in the polar magnetism on planet Earth? Yeah, that's the standard count right now. Okay. We've known that since the late 1960s. All right, because I was under the impression it was one every you know, 20 million years. I didn't realize there were so many oh, in yeah. such a recent amount of time. So. In this little chart I'm looking at, there was one at 780,000 years ago, mm -hmm. and they just announced 42, didn't they? That was known. That's a Lachampe excursion at 40K, uh, and it was one that started to go and then didn't completely flip, so it returned oh. to the starting point. Uh, it was trying oh. to reverse, we think, and then didn't finish. So the so last time it completely reversed was 760,000 years ago, but the Lachampe excursion has been known for a long time. Right. And and would that flip happen in uh, a month or 10 years or 100 years? More try 5,000 years. Oh, my so goodness. So our GPS... Very slow. Thousands of years to complete the flip. The magnetic poles reverse. The North Pole becomes the South Pole. South Pole right, becomes right. the North Pole. reverse directions. What, and actually what, what happens? happens? What's going on there? How does that happen? Well, What's... we don't fully know because it's all happening down in the outer core of the Earth. So all we can do is look at the result that it leaves uh, encoded in rocks that record this magnetic field. But the current thinking is that what happens is the Earth's field actually has two components. It's about 90% the dipole field, the field you're familiar with, which has a north and south direction. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is what's most influential. Uh, and then there's a tiny background, about 10 or 5% of it, that's called a non-dipole field, which has some weird properties, but it's always there. And so what happens when the field reversal appears, the, 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 what they're thinking now is that as the field uh, that you have now starts to weaken and weaken and weaken on its way to reversing, Eventually, it's gone and on the process of turning to the other direction. But meanwhile, the non-dipole field is always there. It doesn't disappear. So the field, there's no point in Earth's history where the field is gone. It just gets weaker and weaker for a while while the fields are switching. But it's such a slow process based on lava flows and ocean sediments we've studied. Uh, 5,000 years is most of human history. So we'd never see it happening in any real-time basis. Right. right. Should we worry? Should we? Should we oh, be yes, worried? Oh yes, we have to worry because GPS will be screwed up. Well, GPS is actually. Yeah, but you global. have to wait for another thousand years or so before that happens. So yeah, forget yeah. about so worrying about your lifetime. But yeah, the, the yeah. crazies out there, they always use a magnetic field flips as some way to scare people, especially remember during the 2012 scare, uh, scare fest, oh, you know, right, they tried to right. convince people to end the world and they talked about magnetic field disappearing and all that was just pure bull****. It was just a way to make money and to <laughs> scare people to uh, contribute money. And in fact, there was no basis to it at all. And of course, and, and any scientist who knows their magnetics would tell you that. So uh, if I understand this correctly, when lava cools, it actually forms a record of 
where it sits on planet Earth in relation to mm -hmm. the right. either magnetic pole, correct? Right, correct. And so, and so I guess it would be what iron molecules orient themselves. Iron minerals, yes. Iron minerals. It's so you'd have to take, uh, apparently you take three samples from, let's say, a lava flow mm -hmm. somewhere in California, but you would have to map where those chunks were in relation to your compass in your hand mm -hmm. prior to bringing them to the lab. All right, yeah. Right, right. You always record works? the exact position, and the old days it was hard to do, but now you, know, you can get the latitude and longitude from a GPS unit. Uh, and so I carry a little portable Garmin when I'm ever doing that kind of research because it's easier to use than a cell phone and doesn't require cell reception. Of course, if you get a near enough canyon, even you, even there you can't get satellite reception either, but generally that's what I use. So you have to record where you are because that's something you're going to plug into the computer program on the way back. Uh, you have to record the exact position of that sample as you took it out of the rock uh, and depends on what you're doing. If I'm scraping a soft sedimentary rock, which won't hold together under drilling, then I actually just take a little uh, plastic compass and measure a north arrow on it, and that is my reference point. So when I took it, take it into the lab, oh. I can keep track of where it pointed at the time I got it. Uh, for the traditional way to do it is take this big di uh, diamond-tipped coring drill, uh, which is basically like a chainsaw with a spinning drill on one no on one end of it, and so you, just go you know pull the gasoline engine onto power, and then it spins this big sort of cylinder. A one inch diameter bit so it creates a, a core about one inch diameter and it's to keep it from getting too hot it has you have a someone next to you pumping a, a big water pump bottle to force uh -huh. water down through the bit because it gets right. too hot if it doesn't you know drilling rock and it also flushes out all the uh, rock you're creating when you grind grind right. down the rock with diamond bits which means uh, if you're doing it, you try to wear goggles, you wear a raincoat or something, unless you don't mind getting completely covered in muddy water by the end of the time you're doing it, because it sprays all over you as you're doing this. And then, the, of course, you have to stop. As soon as you run out of a water bottle, you have to go back and refill it before you can do another one. So I did that as, as few times as possible. Most of the rocks I did were too soft to be drilled anyway. They'd fall apart. So I had soft sedimentary rocks. All I just had is, you know, everyday scrapers and a chisel and, and a rock hammer, and you can do almost all that with simple tools like that. Do you believe the magnetic shift that they said 40,000 years ago? I looked that article over. Um, I'm skeptical because this- Well, they're saying been... that the megafauna, was, it was possibly the cause yeah. of the megafauna extinction in, right. yeah. I think, Australia. Well, the problem with that, again, is that the timing doesn't match as well as they say. It's really several thousand years the excursion took place. Uh, their proposed model is it affects the ozone layer, which is possible. Uh, and so that, way, that would explain why it doesn't happen anywhere else in the world but Australia. Uh, because no place else in the world has a mass extinction at 40,000 years ago. But of course, that's, you know, there's a climate event. There's also aboriginal effects still not agreed upon what killed the Australian mega mammals. And, um, and then to top it off, many, 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 many studies have done, starting back in the 70s. One of the guys who was on my PhD committee, and I later wrote a couple of scientific papers with him, uh, he was the first to try this in the early 70s when they got deep sea cores. And he was wanting to say, okay, we can now record the magnetic field in this deep sea core, which was done by one of my graduate advisors, Neil Updike, back then. Uh, let's see what happens to the microplankton in the ocean when the field flips. So, because he was working on the plankton, that was his especially radiolarians. And mm -hmm. so he looked at all the plankton that were recorded in the ocean, not one of them went extinct at the reversal or any of the boundaries. That's just mm -hmm. several reversals. So, from that onward, every time people have tried to replicate that kind of study, right. do a similar kind of study where they can really see it. 
there's no evidence that field reversal causes extinction in that context. And radiolarians would be really susceptible to a very slight change. Well, they change should. In I climate. mean, they live in the lots of depths in the ocean water column, but the magnetic field is felt everywhere. It doesn't matter whether it's ocean right. or not. And the bigger thing about that is to remember when the field decays, it's very slow, right? Thousands of years minimum, and it never disappears, okay? It gets weaker, but it never disappears. The Schompischer just got weaker and then came right back. Most times when it reverses, it gets weaker and then eventually starts going the other direction. And while it's not very strong, the background field is already there. And then my good friend, Joe Kirshner at Caltech pointed out a good way to think about this. The difference between the magnetic field at the equator today and the North Pole today is about the same as the difference between what it was during reversal and what it was before or after reversal. So it's such a small difference. We don't see that we can't detect and most organisms can't detect it anywhere on the Earth today. Even when you go from between the, the North Pole today and the equator today, the field difference is, is so small. Don't some birds right. use... If you have extremely magnetically sensitive uh, uh, organ systems, like birds have that, yeah. whales have this, sea turtles do it that for way. For migration. Bunch of insects, that they use that for migration. And fish do too, sockeye, salmon. And it is known that when there are you know, odd magnetic storms going on, it throws these animals off. And they migrate and it just, let's say, get grounded somewhere because their, their senses are all whacked out. Didn't somehow, they they came up with a number 42,000. And uh, so there's uh, yep. a number 42 is very special to Douglas Adams, yep. I believe, uh, the hitchhiker's guy. I know. Yes, right. The answer to everything. The answer to everything. But So your training, your unique background in being a geologist and a paleontologist, are you out in the field hunting fossils much these days? You're retired now from teaching, but... Yeah, actually, um, I was uh, pretty much retired from teaching. Once I left my Occidental job, I'm just part-timing it now until I can fully retire. Uh, but uh, when I left my Occidental job, that was the last time I was in a full-time, uh, you know, uh, teaching position, tenure position. And so I was no longer eligible to write grant proposals. And therefore, I don't have that kind of grant money coming wow. in anymore. But most of the research I do anyway is no longer paleomagnetics. I don't have access anyway. Um, it's all about focusing on the mammals I'm studying now, which is peccaries and camels and oridons. Uh, ah. I finished the rhinos back in 2005, so I haven't thought much about them in quite a while. I now work on peccaries and, and camels. But anyway, so, huh. so when I had grant money, of course, I was doing a lot of field work. But the fieldwork is strictly focused on getting these sections of rock, thick sections of rock that were in different places, uh, sampled for paleomagnetic directions, and then bringing them home and running them in the lab. And so that was a, the, the sort of the, the kind of deal I had worked out every time I got an NSF grant. I would, you know, write the money, uh, write the, actually, you go do the research first. So you have guaranteed results. Then you write the grant proposal. <laughs> to get the money to do that research. That you already did. And use that grant proposal. And of course, to write the grant proposal, you put in your sure thing project, which is really actually finished, even though you don't say so. Then you get the money that once they reward the money, that's used, you bootstrap yourself to the next project. For the next one. Those results. And then that's the way it works, right? You, NSF will not pay for anything that's at least the least bit risky. They want sure things, right? They want safe bets. And so if you want to do actually original research, something that's a little bit off the wall, forget it. NSF doesn't pay for that stuff. They only pay for sure things. So that's the game we all have to play. Anyway, when the days when I was doing that kind of research, I go out in the field and I, used, I started my career in the Badlands, South Dakota, Wyoming, Nebraska, uh, North Dakota, Colorado. That was where my thesis project was back in the 80s. And then I worked my way across a lot of other mammal bearing beds across the 90s. Uh, mostly in the Rocky Mountain region. And then by the mid 90s, I was back here in or big, late 80s, I was back here in California. So I started working on uh, Western Pacific outcrops 
and I worked in California for a while. Then by the 90s, I was working up in Oregon and Washington a lot. So that sort of culminated in 2001 with a big volume that I edited, which has like 31 papers in it that I co-authored on of all my students' projects and magnetic sections running as said, San Diego all the way to Victoria, British Columbia. So, Where do you get the time to write? So do you, you must have writer's cramp. I mean, do you have like five hours a day? Well, actually, I have a typist cramp now. I get yeah. uh, you know carpal tunnel after a long day on the keyboard. But, but is uh, it like five hours a day that you just say, I'm going to write? Well, I try to find time when I can. And I, luckily for me, most of what I write, I write because I know it really well. So I don't spend much time having to look things up or read a bunch of stuff. It's stuff I've taught all my life. In most cases, that's what most of my books are full of. If they're, you know, portrayed books, it's stuff I've taught for years. So I know it off the top of my head. Oh. Uh, and I'm just really efficient because, you know, when my kids are younger, uh, the only time I had peace and quiet was the six hours from when they went to school to when they came home. So as soon as they were out the door and it was, uh, they were safely at school, I would get on the computer and write like a maniac for six hours. I didn't have any more free time. <laughs> so all these uh, ri these writers who say, oh, I need a big uh, vacation cabin, a great a relaxing view and lots of space and peace and quiet. <laughs> well, I'm like a reporter. I have to write when I have to write, you know. And I do it when I get the chance and I don't get the option of just relaxing or thinking or anything. It's just six hours of freedom, time to write, you know, get it done. Whatever I can get done in six hours, I get done. So you work with the same publisher? I've worked with a bunch of publishers, about a dozen now. Uh, the one I've worked with almost often is Columbia University Press. Uh, I've been uh, had a relationship with three editors in a row now there where I've been able to. You've outlived them. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, editors rotate, you know, they go through four yeah, or five years and they're gone. Uh, academics uh, sat around for 30, 40 years, like I have. So, uh, you know, I had one editor back in the 90s, Ed Lutenbiel, who was uh, very uh, encouraging to projects I did. And then when he moved on, then I had uh, Patrick Fitzgerald, my editor, for about 15 years. Many of the projects I uh, submitted were his. And then uh, I currently have a new editor. So it just goes that way. They, they... So you've, you've got textbooks as well. Right. Too, I've right? got eight the... geology textbooks at the moment, although wow. one is out of print. Because uh, the market part vanished, and the, there's another one where I'm no longer on the masthead, but I was in the first edition. So, <laughs> okay. Well, what is your most popular science book? I'm just curious. Which, which, what's it's what's the one? I should, if you're going to send somebody to the bookstore to get uh, Don's greatest book, what is it? Well, got so my many. bestseller, other than textbooks, the textbooks have a different market, right? Although these right, days textbooks right. are telling selling terribly, so I don't count that anymore. But at one time, textbooks sold tens of thousands a year. That no longer happens anymore. Uh, but the book that's not a textbook that sold the best is my 2007 book on evolution. Uh, it's called uh -huh. Evolution, What the Fossils Say and Why It Matters, which I wrote in response to the intelligent design craze in the early 2000s uh, and, uh, you know, trying to, to sort of get ahead of that because this subject, I really fought this battle over evolution my entire professional career. So going back to my first teaching job where I debated Dwayne Gish, the chief creationist debater of all. Uh, and so I got very familiar with that topic. And of course, as a paleontologist, I saw that, you know, the creationists had created a giant muddy mess of the lies about the fossil record, especially Dwayne Gish, who just lied and lied, lied with no background. The guy doesn't know one bone from another. You know, he's just a biochemist. And that was 60 years ago. I 
saw in one of your YouTube videos, was this the challenge that you did where you had four of your students in the audience and 98% was his uh, uh, followers? Yeah, probably referring to that. Yeah, it was held in uh, Purdue University, Indiana in uh, let's see, October. So it was stacked uh, against you. 1980, <laughs> let's see, 1983, I think. Yeah, it Anyway, it was the kind of thing where they, they, he was visiting Indiana University campus to give this uh, debate. Uh, and they, because I was at the time serving, this is before they actually had the NCSE down in, in Oakland. Wait, what's the NCSE? And the National Center for Science Education. It's located in Oakland. It's Great. a major clearinghouse for all the resources you need to help teachers battle creationists in every state of the country. But I've case, turned to them a few times. Yeah. They're a great, great organization. I, I love working with them. They're a great group. Eugenie Scott was their leader for many years. She's now retired. They have a new one. Yeah, Jeannie. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I've been there a bunch of times and worked with them on several occasions. They gave me an award a couple of years ago, Friend of Evolution. Anyway, um, so the uh, the upshot was back in 83, this was still a time when there's a lot of the old-fashioned creations being beaten up in the schools, you know, and, and having you know, crises. So Gish was on a lecture and debate tour, and the guy who was the national coordinator for my area said, would you like to debate him? And I said, well, okay, I would, normally I would say no, because it's a pointless exercise, right? You're not going right. to win. You're not going to change anyone's mind. Uh, you're basically just you know, talking to a wall because uh, these guys come with their conclusions already in mind. They're not open to learning anything, and they certainly aren't open to hearing you. And of course, it goes back to the very fundamental reason that it's hard to work with creationists or any other science denier. Uh, in the case of creation, especially if they listen to you, they're damned to hell, right? Their whole souls are real, so you're not <laughs> oh. going to convince them, right? No, that's how <laughs> they think, right? That. That's it. Oh, what oh, motivates oh. creationists, they're biblical literalists who've been told again and again that if they don't believe every word of the Bible, yeah, you're going to hell. Straightforward, you're going to hell. How do you wow. ever change their mind when that, that's the motivation? Yeah. Uh, but I have an advantage because I grew up in a Christian household, uh, although I lost my faith well before I got to college. Uh, but I studied Latin and Greek and Hebrew, so I can read both the Old and New Testament in the original language, or I used to. I can't do it anymore. Uh, so mm -hmm. I know from having uh, read them in the original that you cannot trust any translation because there's lots of mistakes. There's lots of copying areas in there where they know there's missing text. There's areas in there where we know that's mistranslated or that's been mistaken in some way because these things are not even written documents for about a century after they were first uh, done yeah, and they were forced yeah. to recopied and recopied with all the errors that go into anything that's that old. And so uh, I could, you know, I could, at the time I could read the New Testament back in Greek and tell them this is mistranslated. Uh, but it was because I was curious about the origins of that religion, which I had grown up with. So anyway, so I got in a debate with this guy, Dwayne Gish, who was a yeah, How'd that go? How'd that go? Yeah. yeah well, it was interesting because I'd heard about what he did and they had a network of people who had been facing him, including Ken Miller, who's still at Brown and so on. Then I found out he was going to be, I taught in Illinois at the time, at Galesburg, Illinois, a tiny place called Knox College. Been there. I've been to Galesburg. Okay, yep. Yeah. Well, I went to Western Illinois University. Oh, I know WIU. Yep, <laughs> yep. I have friends over there too. But he would, the week before I was to face him, he was he was giving an unopposed talk at University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. And so I went down there uh, just to scout it and to watch him. And he gives the same exact slide this is back 35 millimeter slide days of course same exact talk when the slides are even fading so they're sort of being kodachrome red now and uh, they they're the punch lines are always the same the guy is a robot he never even listens to his opponent he says exactly what he says the same time every time and the same lies and even the same lame jokes in the same position so i saw him in this case he was speaking to 
uh, an audience of general you know, students from the University of Illinois, and it was free. So a lot of skeptical and uh, non-theistic students got there, and they heckled, they heckled him and rattled him because he was, of course, talking shit. And so, uh, but I saw a slide check, so I knew in advance what he was going to say. And luckily, this is a four-hour debate, but luckily wow. I was given the first uh, 30 minutes and the third 30 minutes out of the first two hours. So I had the first and third slots. So I immediately jumped into his arguments and debunked them before I knew he would get to them. Sure <laughs> I wow. did it. Then his 30 minutes came up. He had the exact same slide talk. He didn't change a thing. He did not address anything I said because he can't. And he doesn't even listen to you anyway. But the audience heard, at least some of them, heard him completely ignore the point I'd raised and the challenges I'd thrown down at him. And then we did it the same way in the second half. So he made lies about dinosaurs not, you know, not evolving. There's no transitional fossils. And I had already shown them transitional fossils of dinosaurs in the previous half hour. So I did get a number of people who came up to me after and said that I had convinced them because they must have been less, less dogmatic than most creationists. And then they listened to him basically you know, completely ignore and completely deny everything I'd said. And then after that two-hour marathon, short break, wow. they gave the audience a bunch of questions written on three-by-five cards, write questions for us. And then they brought it up to us, and we were supposed to answer them in turn. And then the other person gets to jump in, too. And so I should have known they would play dirty. They put all these questions like, are you a, a sinner? You know, do you have a, a homosexual leanings? You know, do you that, all that stuff? All they give a shit about. They have no interest in science. They're just there to judge you. Uh, and so I had right. to find a way to, because that throws, you're supposed to throw you off. And of course, I quickly skipped those questions and went to the problem. Was this the intelligent design argument that he was presenting? This would have been 83. This is before, yeah. Before this intelligent was, design. This is just oh, creationism. Right. Yeah, the, the core decisions that wow. caused intelligent design to emerge hadn't happened yet. So they were still trying to teach old-fashioned creationism. Hmm. Interesting. So anyway, and then the other thing, of course, these these uh, these people are always slimy, right? They te They play dirty all the time, which I should know pretty much by expectation now, even before the debate started, they played this game where the announcer, of course, was a creationist because they were the sons running the debate. Uh, and the announcer was saying something like, well, we couldn't get Stephen Jay Gould and we couldn't get Niles Eldridge. So we got, and then of course, introducing me and not realizing how to snub that is to say, oh, well, you're just some kind of local schmo who doesn't deserve to be here because Stephen Jay Gould is afraid to debate us. <laughs> it's the basic way they think about it. And, uh, and it was also, of course, as I, you mentioned at the beginning, it was a very much a one-side audience. They run this on a Saturday night on the Purdue campus when they're charging a lot of money, like 10 or 15 bucks. And you know, on any big university, there are lots more things to do on a Saturday night than don't sit in the debate. So hardly any students are gonna show up. I brought four of them from Illinois with me. And then the rest was busload after busload of people from all the local <laughs> churches because he's their superstar. There you go. And so, you, you, know, you know, I just I can't approach the debate as a learning experience, you know, practice it once with a real opponent, do the best I can and not expect to win anything because it's not winnable. And of course, I created a lot of slides for future lectures with it and I learned a lot of things about it. And so it taught me a lot of things, but I never, you know, never want to repeat it. It's a waste of time to repeat it. I just did it for the first time only. So, is this recorded or somewhere online? Can you watch the all four hours? Somewhere in my possession. Yeah, I have a set of four cassette tapes with all of it on there, and I haven't seen them in a while. I did. Oh, yeah, but it's probably frustrating to way, listen yeah. to. Is probably yeah. What yeah, it is. it is. I can't. I can't do it anymore. I refuse to debate yeah. of any kind anymore. The last time I did it was 2009, and the, of course the organizers or the intelligent design people, especially uh, anyway, the guy who wrote the Darwin's book. Yeah, yeah. Blanking on his name now. 
uh, Steve That's something. Okay. Anyway, he was their main guy along with this guy Sternberg, who was the one who famously got his, his creationist published, a paper published in the Proceedings of Biological Science of Washington. And uh, so they organized it, uh, and it was all organized by creationists. It was the first thing why you shouldn't do it, because they always try to stack the deck. They give uh, Michael Shermer and myself, Michael Shermer is the head of Skeptic Society, who had been originally scheduled to debate them, and then he wrote me into helping him. So they gave us a one debate topic, and the day of the debate, after my slides are all set, and I can't change a thing, they changed the topic of the debate. <laughs> Move, yeah. Made yeah, almost yeah. everything I intended to say completely irrelevant because they had pushed, pushed it to a different topic. This is the kind of shit they do all the time. Yeah. Uh, and the only <laughs> other recent debate I have with them was probably about 2003 or four, and there was a uh, panel of uh, creationists and uh, non-creationists, including myself, on this LA Unified School District, uh, you know, public access show. And uh, so I got paired with a lawyer uh, who was my pair, and then these two guys from ICR came up. And I realized these are not winnable. The best you can do is get a draw. So, because the debate format is not how we decide science, right? Science isn't done by debating tricks. And so yeah. I, what I did is I realized, well, my, the topic is about teaching creationism school, which is illegal and unconstitutional, no question about it. So my lawyer friend did all the work about pointing that out to win the debate itself. And what I did is I blocked ahead of him. I tackled these creationist guys. So the minute they said a lie about the fossil record, I was like, sorry, buddy, you're not a paleontologist. I'm a paleontologist. Yeah. I've actually handled uh, yeah, that fossil. Yeah. You have it completely wrong. The real problem with the creationist debate is the premises are wrong to begin with. Right. And they will say right. something stupid and simplistic, like the second law of thermodynamics does not support evolution. And of course, they are completely wrong. And you have, you're in the awkward position having to redefine everything and explain what second law does and doesn't do which always puts you at disadvantage over the simplistic but wrong ideas they present. Right. Uh, so you have to cut them off if they're about to lie to you. You can't be a gentleman. Don, I want to get back to your great body of work debunking science denial. But Ray, didn't you have a question about uh, Gould actually cited you, Don? Right. Actually, I was going to say, you know, there's, there's a lot about, you know, Mr. Darwin published his great theory in uh, 1859. There's been lots of, well further expansion on what uh, Charles was saying, but uh, punctuated equilibrium. Stephen Jay Gould and a couple of his colleagues came up with this concept. Mm -hmm. yep. And then he also cited you as being a person who uh, could actually has used it in your own work. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us in maybe just a couple of minutes what punctuated equilibrium is? Yes. Um Punctuated equilibrium is an idea that Steve and one of my advisors, Niles Elger, at the American Museum, I took a seminar Niles, with him and everything, right. uh, came up with uh, in early before my career started in 71, 72. That was when I started college. Uh, and the basic idea is if you look at biological speciation theory, okay, which was formulated by Ernst Meyer and people like that way back in the 1930s and 40s, the idea is that if you look at biological speciation theory, speciation is a process that happens very, very rapidly and usually on the edge or some isolated part of a main population. The main population doesn't change. It's, it's branching off into subspecies, usually in isolated, what are called peripheral isolates. And it takes place, for as far as you can tell, looking at modern and recent examples, in a few hundred to a few thousand years. So this would be like a finch going to another island of the Galapagos and changing its... Yeah, that would be a possibility, yeah. Changing its beak shape because there's insects there in the right, flowers, right. but not where it came from. Right. Right. And Meyer himself was an ornithologist. He got this idea of looking at birds in New Guinea and finding, for example, in islands off New Guinea, there would be a different species of something because they've been isolated from the mainland population. 
That has been pretty much the accepted idea of how species form now for almost what, 80 years. Uh, and yet paleontologists never realized when they, this was accepted by all biologists that what that says, you can't see that kind of speciation in the fossil record, except in a rare circumstance, right? You can't tell an event that's 100 years in duration when your rock record is millions of years. It's a totally different time scale. So paleontologists have been forcing themselves to try to see gradual evolution of one group to another in the fossil record. But what biology has told us is that you can't see that because it happens too fast. And we don't have the detail and the, the year by year record to show that almost anywhere. So all these times they've been saying, we're going to see gradual evolution of this fossil through the rock record. Well, that's biologically completely out of scale. It's the wrong way to think about it. So Gould and Eldridge, hence they were young men at the time, they were the ones who were trained on biological speciation. And they said, this is all wrong. It doesn't make sense. And that it doesn't fit the scale of what we're looking at, which is tens of thousands of millions of years. And what they did find instead was that when you look at species over very long time scales, they do not change. You don't see gradual transformation over thousands of years. What you see is that when a new species appeared, it appears more or less suddenly, as far as the rock record is concerned, because it comes from someplace else and migrates back into wherever you have your fossils. Okay, and so you see long periods of stasis, equilibrium, mm -hmm. if you will, where the fossils don't appear to change much. And then every once in a while, a branch, a species branches off and shows up in your collecting area. And so you have two species. They, the species is not formed by steady change through time over thousands of millions of years. It's branching over a few hundred years, and then they come back in from wherever they, they were isolated. That was the prediction. It should have been available in the 1930s, but it took until 1972 where paleontologists finally caught on. And it was because young men like Gould and Eldridge, who had no previous history of being stuck to the old ways of doing things, recognized that they were thinking the wrong time scale. That's the basis of punctuated equilibrium. And so what paleontologists can do, however, is we have a time scale of millions of years. Biologists can't do that, right? So we can see what the long-term trends are and whether the kind of stuff biologists see with the Galapagos finches or fruit flies in a fruit fly cage, uh, those kinds of changes happen, but do they ever add up to new species that often? That's a tough question to answer now. Because what we don't see is that kind of gradual change of time, except in rare instances, we see lots and lots of stasis and then sudden change, or at least sudden by geologist timescale. So I guess what you're saying is that biologically, we could see actually even our own human lifetimes, we could see animals changing. And sometimes this evolution is happening at such a rapid scale that it doesn't show up in the in the rock record. Right, anymore. rock record can't see that kind of detail, except in extraordinary things. You can't get a year by year record anywhere, okay? You can't get a 10 year record most places, okay? So, you know, Darwin, the, the phrases survival, the fittest, natural selection, these right. things. But also we had a recent guest on, we were talking about whales and actually uh, behavior modifying evolution. Yeah. And a case up here that we're seeing, I guess, is that uh, just to take it back to my Southeast Alaskan backyard or uh, in the ocean out here, we're seeing uh, killer whales, orcas, and there's one group that behaves and has pretty much separated itself from, there's the fish eaters, mm -hmm. and then there's the outer coastal mammal eaters. Mm -hmm. So that that behavior, this animal culture is driving the evolutionary yeah, change. Culture does change very fast. It changes much faster than animals can evolve or animals can pass on genes, right? That takes place over however long the generation time of your creature is, right? So it's fast and things like bacteria, it's hundreds of years in the case of uh, mesozoans to take a long time to reproduce. But that's culture evolution. That has the humans, of course, are mostly cultural. 
But would you be able to see the mammal eaters and the salmon eaters in the bone histology in the fossil record a million years from now of those orcas? Yeah, yeah. If they if they have a geochemical distinction in their bones or teeth, that's something we are. I believe we can do that because uh, the, especially the carbon isotopes would tell you what they're eating. Uh, so that would be a possibility. But again, you wouldn't see a speciation event, right? That takes place so fast that it rarely shows up in the rock record. Is given that our record isn't that perfect anyway. Okay. That's the essence of it. And then to finish the thought, um, so I was trained in that because I was one of Nile Hildred's students and I have a good friend with Steve all through my career. He came down and visited me several times in New York, although he's at Harvard most of the time. And um, so I, Steve was very encouraged to me, supported me when I, my job was threatened, a bunch of other things. Anyway, um, what I found out was that I had stumbled across when I was working on my thesis project, I was working with these mammals in the big badlands, the best, most fossiliferous beds in North America, and some would say the world, for, especially for that time interval. So I had thousands and thousands of these fossil skulls in the American Museum of Natural History in New York to work with, and I could look at the fine scale, at least as fine scale as anything in the mammal record does over a few thousand years, and I dated it with Paleomag, so I had the dating very well nailed down. And so at the point where I realized it, shortly after my dissertation was finished, I said, well, I've got a record that actually shows all the mammals from the White River Group and whether they change as far as bones are concerned or teeth are concerned at all. And I knew already from just looking at the specimens, they don't. And yet we know there's a giant climate change there at the early Oligocene, the Eocene Oligocene transition. So the, the thrust of what I did in research was, here's a big climate change which conventionally should tell you these things should change and all but two or three of them do not change at all. They go right on through the, uh, the climate change level with no apparent change. You know, a phrase I use when I lecture about it is like Rhett Butler, frankly, dear, they don't give a damn. <laughs> anyway, that joke now is not going to be too familiar in a few years and nobody remembers going with the wind anymore. But uh, you and I will know that. Yeah. We'll get the joke. Anyway, so that's it. And then I did the same with La Brea mammals. When I came out here to Los Angeles 20 years ago, I started my students working with the La Brea mammals. And La Brea mammals span the entire last peak ice age and then into the modern times. And so we could look at detailed records from La Brea from different pits to see if they show up and the peak of the cold at uh, 20,000 years ago, show up as you know, more thick limbed or shorter limbed, the kinds of things animals do when there's a you know, change in climate. No, none of the mammals La Brea care about climate change. So that's kind of, and then we did the birds at La Brea too. So we have about 25 species now. Wow. So in your recent book, The Story of Evolution and 25 Discoveries, you write that the KT extinction event wasn't as, it wasn't as severe and devastating as believed. Right. There was no acidification of the oceans. Well, that, that's debatable, yeah. Because uh, But there's a lot of plant, calcareous plankton that don't uh, have any effect at all. And likewise, you'll have people say, well, the, you know, the ocean, the platmaster got all this sulfur from the gypsum in the Yucatan Peninsula and turned into sulfur, pure acid. Well, if that's the case, there wouldn't be a frog or salamander lying for the planet right now because their skins are porous and they cannot stand acid. Even acid rain that humans create, as tiny as the amount as that is, that's because they suppress populations of frogs and salamanders. So these geophysicists and geochemists say, oh, I, I'm saying that the atmosphere is full of sulfuric acid. Well, biology says that's not true. And that's a problem with this, this whole KT debate, which is now going on, what, 41 years this year. Uh, and I, I remember from the first year it started in 1980, every year the professional meetings we dozens of talks about this topic and related topics. The uh, basic of it is that, that, you know, these people who do all this mostly are geochemists, geophysicists, they're fine data. They say, okay, I've solved the problem in story. And then the paleobiologists and biologists who know life is often more complex 
say, well, what about the fact that it doesn't affect amphibians at all? They go right through. No matter what you do to the water they're in, it goes right through. Most of the other animals, I mean, there's a small transition in the mammals, but it's not big and there's not a lot of extinction. All, all the other things like turtles just pretty much pass right through. Uh, almost all the land animals that you would think be affected, crocodiles and, ca and campsosaurs, they can't hide in the water for long enough to survive and they don't hibernate in a Cretaceous world. So how do they survive when there are many dinosaurs smaller in body size than they are that did not make it? So it's a more complicated story. And the thing that's often missed is the media likes simple and sexy, right? Simplistic, I should say, <laughs> and sexy. Dinosaurs plus impact makes cover Time magazine, right? If you say, well, but it's more complicated than that, they don't want to listen, right? And then nobody hears how complicated the story is, like everything in science almost always is, which is that there's the second biggest eruption in Earth history, the Deccan Traps in what's now India and Pakistan happening just before this. And we have all sorts of indicators that climate is changing thanks to the Deccan eruptions. And we have lots of things that go extinct clearly long before the impact happened. There were few species at the KT yep. event left. Yeah, well, especially in the marine realm, we lose, the, lose a lot of various types of uh, oyster-like creatures, these redistids and the giant dinner plate clams, got the inocermids, they're gone long before the rock from space. A lot of other mollusks don't show any change at all. In fact, that's a striking thing. Yes, there's some plankton that got wiped out probably by the impact, but most of the marine mollusks and snails and clams just don't give a damn, as do the echinoids. They go right through. And that's never mentioned because it's complicated. The media doesn't want to talk about complicated. Well, Don, would you say it's a combination of the comet and the Deccan? You know, it's a yeah, I'm saying it's a combination, right. But have you had this debate with people like uh, our friend Kirk Johnson, who led... Uh, oh, I know. A lot of the research. Uh, do you guys get into it a little bit? He, he's a plant guy, and plants do very sharp change, right? Yeah. So your perspective is different if you come from an organism that does that. Uh, and I agree that, you know, there's, it's, it's a. I hope you're listening, Kirk. Oh, I'm happy <laughs> oh. to talk. I've talked to Kirk about this before. It's been a yeah, no, this, it's kind of fun. It goes back and forth. But yeah, so there's always very many, many layers to, uh, you know, the arguments and nuances and subtleties. And so it's great to see two experts really going at yeah, it and yeah. not, you know, somebody, you know, simple and sexy does sell, you know, look what it's done for Dave and I. <laughs> what, I'm simple I... and you're sexy. <laughs> That's, I was just wanted to set that one up. <laughs> Sorry. books do you got going on right now what's what are you working on right now don so i have a book uh, on convertebrate evolution that's going to be probably out in this, this fall i hope It'd be nice if it makes it in time for svp meeting and it's illustrated by nobu michi toramura so you might know his art he does all sorts of reconstructions of animals that are fairly okay. scientifically accurate and uh, he does it for, he's a, it's his part-time hobby he doesn't do it for his living and he's everywhere because he gives his art away for free but he's doing this book the entire book for to, together with this. And so he's creating some new pieces, but most of them are going to be his existing reconstructions all Excellent. put together. And so it'll be the fully illustrated, four color, really fancy images. And so I'm trying to write a text around it to make it appealing to not only the, the trade audience, you know, the, the amateurs and the, and the enthusiasts, but also it can be used, let's say, at undergraduate level. Uh, so it doesn't assume any anatomy, doesn't assume any uh, morphology, doesn't assume any knowledge of systematics, stuff that professional paleontologists have to know. 
It just talks about the animals and without using complicated terminology. So it's hard to write because that, you know, I'm not used to speaking an audience that wants to know this amount of detail, but doesn't know one bone from another, but I'm working on it and it's nearly done. I mean, I've gotten the first draft all reviewed and I'm now going through the art with, uh, with Nobu and getting that fixed. So that's supposed to be out this fall. And then What's I just, the title? it's called the title vertebrate is, evolution, vertebrate evolution from okay. dinosaurs to mammals or whatever the subtitle is. And then the uh, one I just got a contract for about a month ago will be my summer project. And that, that's, that's another one of the books in this 25 series. It's be the fifth in that series. It's called the story hmm. of climate in 25 discovery. Uh -huh. So I'm going to talk. I've heard about that. Lately, not only yeah. the recent climate, which will be at the end, but I'm going to talk about the greenhouse, ice house planets. I'm going to talk about the snowball earth. I'm going to talk about the faint young sun climate going from the earliest earth climate all the way to what we're dealing with now. Brilliant. In your career, what is the weirdest thing or unexplained item that you've come across that has just either perplexed you or blown you away? Huh. Uh, that's an odd question. I'm trying to think of something. You mean it's scientifically or just in anything? General? It could be a weird fossil. It could be a weird relationship. Oh, yeah. Well, between... there's, there's a lot of those. Um, there's, a, for example, a fossil rhino I've seen. It's been 25 years now since they found it. Still haven't published it. And it's a very weird looking rhino from a, uh, at a crater, an astroblem up in the Canadian Arctic that was found by my now late colleague, Mary Dawson. And she never got oh. living long enough find it. Oh. And I, I've seen the specimen. Mary let me look at it last time I was in Pittsburgh to look at things. And uh, so I know it's a freaky rhino because it has things that late rhinos have that early ones don't, but it, it's, it's got weird features that don't go with a later rhino. So I think one of the reasons they haven't published it in 25 years is they don't know what to do with it yet. Whatever. Anyway, they're friends of mine are now working on it, and I'm curious. To yeah, I, I've kind of heard through the grapevine they're working on that one. I I, I kind of heard a little bit about that one. So yeah, that's happening. Well, so. it's not yet published, so I have to wait. <laughs> oh, stay tuned. Hey, well, um, well, thank you so much for being on the show with us, and uh, you know, two, being uh, two last questions. Two last questions okay, here, but uh, you know, uh, here is I'm about to turn 67, just like you, man. Just thinking about that birthday coming up. But hey. Don, if you could get in the old time machine and go back in time, what time period would you go to and what would you want to see? I would go to the uh, late Eocene of uh, the central United States, the time of the Big Badlands, which is where I did my very mm -hmm. first research. And uh, I would uh, get to see these animals I've worked on for I said, 40 years now. Because uh, you know it's really cool to work with the earliest camels and the earliest horses and these big brontotheres and these very primitive rhinos. I have lots of bones and I've seen hundreds of them, but it would be really cool to see what they looked like and what their environment was like. Because as I said, this was a world that was in a climate transition, which I published a story about. Uh, does it show any real change in the mammals, in spite of the fact that it's a big change in climate? So it's awesome. the Eocene, and it's Eocene, hot, early Eocene, yeah, just badlands during their heyday. So forty million years ago. Any particular animal you want to see? You're just curious well, about? Well, uh, originally I would have said Sabarachidon, the common rhino, but then lately I've been working on Percurus, which is the common peccary out of there. And I have already uh, done a lot of work on Prubitherium, the, the, the only camel from that area. So uh, those are the animals I've worked on the most. Huh. Interesting. The peccary, prehistoric peccary. Yeah, I have a whole book coming out on peccaries. It's hopefully this coming March or April. Well, we're in March. Uh, I've seen lots of evidence of peccaries in southeast Arizona. Uh, I'm sure you do, especially you get yeah. to south Arizona. They're yeah. they're pretty aggressive. Uh, thing you don't want to they miss. They are. Them. They are. In fact, uh, I think that's what gave old Yeller uh, rabies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
they're, they carry some diseases. I don't know, but they will bite almost anything that approaches them if they yeah. are threatened. So really, I, I have to worry about peccaries. Yes, next time I'm, you do. Might come at me. Yes, oh, you do. No. <laughs> well, yes. pe- the peccaries have a long history, 40 million year history, just like rhinos do in North America. And that's the only place wow. they were until they finally escaped to South America. And then, of course, now most of them live in Central and South America. But we have weird, weird peccaries, some with these big crests sticking out of their cheekbones and other weird shaped things sticking out of their cheekbones. And all this stuff was in the collections in the 1940s, 1950s, and no one had worked on it until I got a chance to work on it. So I now have a big monograph, it's supposed to be out in a month or so, on all the North American peccaries, and that's gonna update the whole thing. I got to name a bunch of new species. Cool. And the Raymond Alf Museum has got the flaming peccary and That's has right. an annual peccary talk. Yep. So there's this whole peccary I'll, talk. I've asked them All if right. they want me to do a real peccary talk and actually about peccaries. So. Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll put in a word. Before I ask my final question, let's do a, a screenshot of our T-shirts. Oh, yeah. Let me get my... Well, i got a rhinoceros. Oh, good for you. And uh, I was going to warn you, we usually do this. We do a little screenshot. Okay. There you, there you go. go. It still there says you go. PNS That's on it. it. Yeah. Five, four, three, two, one. Don, okay, my question. All right. So, Don, I'm in awe of your great body of work. Thank you. A lot of it is debunking science denial. Now, you've written critically acclaimed books and given numerous talks and lectures. Yeah. And your message is clear. Humans are tribal. Facts and evidence don't matter, especially if they're challenged by someone's belief system. You lecture about humans' willingness to consciously and unconsciously accept cognitive dissonance. Now, can you please briefly explain what cognitive dissonance is and how can us non-scientists combat propaganda and lies on social media and from conservative news sources? Okay. Uh, So humans, first of all, are not rational animals. That's the starting point, okay? We are what Michael Shermer calls the believing brain. We are pretty much programmed from the way we're raised, the people we live with, our family, our community, our friends, to believe what they believe, okay, and accept what they accept. And it's very hard to change anyone once they've gotten these patterns from their young age. And so what we do all the time is that if we say have one set of beliefs, and then we run into something which is telling us those beliefs are wrong, then we have a dissonance in our brain, right? One is saying, I, you know, this is wrong, and I then the other one's saying, I can't accept it's wrong. So for example, if you are a uh, smoker and you know that the evidence says smoking is bad for you, but you want to keep on smoking, then you will dismiss the evidence. You'll get over the dissonance, the clash between those two things in your cognitive systems by just denying one aspect or minimizing one aspect. If you are a hardcore libertarian who believes government is evil and big messes is good, you will say, well, climate change interferes with government because we'll have to do something. You know, government will interfere with business, I should say. And therefore, climate change can't be real because business is always right. In other words, you have these clashing things. Your brain is compartmentalized. You often believe contradictory things all the time. You know, it's simple things like, well, I'm a great person. And then you know you just got a speeding ticket, right? So, <laughs> yeah, I'm a great person, but I still break the law and I still make mistakes. And so you have to paper over those differences all the time in order to survive without going crazy. That's cognitive dissonance, okay? In the cases we're talking about, people have strong belief systems, whether it's creationism, or climate denial, they come from usually their family or their political atmosphere they're in. And then no matter what evidence that you try to present them, and how you present it to them even doesn't matter, it's so deeply rooted, they cannot accept it. They cannot uh, undo it in their brain. So they will find ways to minimize or deny or just not listen right. to anything that doesn't fit. Right. You say facts and evidence don't matter. You say that. But, right. but they do matter. So how do we combat it? 
They it's, do matter. It's challenging. I mean, today with the situation where these people live in a media bubble, you know, where they just listen to Fox and nothing else, and they've been told everybody else is lying, it's like a cult system. You can't reach them unless somehow you can get through all that complete cocoon of, of right-wing media stuff they're in. So examples I know of are mostly cases where someone in a family is reaching to another family member and eventually pulls them back because that family ties are stronger than some belief systems. Otherwise, if you're a stranger, you don't have a chance. And I found, for example, when I worked on my evolution book, it's not the diehards. You're ever going to reach the diehards unless they themselves decide to do it. What you try to do is reach for the people on the border, people on the fence. So my evolution book in 2007, for example, I got tons and tons of emails and other communications saying that the book changed their minds because they had you know, been raised a creationist, let's say, but had been exposed to evolution a bit, but of course not very accurately, and didn't know what to think. You know, they had some openness in their thinking, or they were just not fully decided, committed to being creationists. Those people, you can be reached. People who don't know much about climate, for example, which is most of the mem members of that right-wing media, they just believe it because the rest of them tell them to believe it. Once you sort of give them the facts, it starts to create this dissonance again in their brains. And if you do it the right way, and then usually it's not the first time you talk to them or expose them to it, it's they have to mull over it for a while. And then some, eventually they come out and realize there's another side of the story. But it's a very hard battle to win now because all these people in the right-wing media bubble are so insular, so isolated. They deny anything that doesn't come from Fox or OAN or uh, these other right-wing sources. And they're bombarded with lies from the right-wing sources all day long, as long as they listen. That's something that's very difficult. And the real, real problem now is we don't have any, uh, you know, I remember Walter Cronkite and Chet Huntley and uh, David Brinkley. Yeah. Back in the days before the Fairness Doctrine was, the, was thrown out by Reagan in 1988. And it's, those of us old enough to remember those newscasters, you remember them, they, they're scrupulously they gave equal, balanced. Equal voices. Right. Scrupulously balanced and neutral as they could best be. And if they were expressing opinion, it was labeled as editorial or opinion. Okay, very clearly so. The Fairness Doctrine was wiped out by Reagan's people in 1988, allowed all these highly partisan sources to call themselves news organizations, though Fox technically is not a news organization, it's an entertainment network legally. So it doesn't have an obligation to actually report the truth. And that splintering of the media landscape has meant that you can find anyone, any station that makes you feel good about yourself and tells you what you want to hear. And then you can't be reached because there's no central source. And the, the internet's made it worse. My favorite way to describe the internet is a cesspool of lies. Because yeah. for every good side on the, on the internet, there's five or six bad ones. Yeah. And so, so in conclusion, and I'm going to edit this out, we're okay. We're screwed. <laughs> well, we're screwed in some uh, ways. But I think the, the, yeah. the younger generation, this younger generation is all on the side now. The younger generation is going to change us all. Another yeah. couple election cycles, the old fogies are hard right-wingers are all going to be out of the picture. But you know what? You said that in a lecture in 2014, having no idea about the election in 2016. That's so right. Do you still feel the same way? It takes time, right? I mean, all my yeah. students, right, people who are actually exposed to education and have friends who are gay and have friends who are different races, they aren't growing up racist, right? They aren't growing up anti-gay. And they aren't growing up exposed to bad science. The young generation is not blocking their way, and nor, of course, are minorities either. So eventually the demographics are going to get rid of them, but it's going to take a while. Yeah. Do you, do you think that creationism, uh, the, the argument to have uh, to teach the controversy, as uh, you know, some people will say, 
creationism in the schools, uh, is that behind us? Or do you think that uh, that whole notion of let's let's talk about both sides? And Yeah, no, it's not entirely behind us. Yeah, the, yeah they, it's they, not behind us, but you're not going to say, oh, here's Jack and the Beanstalk, yeah, and here yeah. is Darwin. So let's discuss the similarities and differences. That's right, just, that's right. You well, can't do it. You can't no, do it. It shouldn't be done. At the moment, it's mostly illegal in most states, or they have a few states where there's a little bit. But, you know, unfortunately, as long as that scare uh, – fright of uh you know going to hell fundamentalist uh, intimidating teachers is a still a serious threat they just tiptoe around evolution completely mostly i've actually found that you know even with my own kids here in the schools in ketchikan uh even though evolution was in the science books they got it in junior high school and high school i found that actually a lot of the teachers were uncomfortable and basically said yeah you kids are looking at that on your own but it wasn't actually yeah, taught yeah. in the classroom which I found really disturbing. That's been the pattern for a long time. Yeah. All right. We have to wrap this up because I'm going to get very angry. I'm going to get really, really oh. angry right now. <laughs> okay. I'm used to this stuff. So, yeah. Hey, Don, uh, I really appreciate your work on uh, debunking science deniers. And it's just fantastic. And what we need is we need reality and facts. And, and you are right there at the forefront of it. And thank you. Thank oh, you. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Yeah. Thanks for your tremendous output. Uh, Weird Earth is one of your latest. Yeah, just I came think. out uh, last summer. And that's uh, debunking a lot of the crazy stuff about Flat Earth yep. and all the other yeah, crazy exactly. you stuff. Won't, but, you uh, won't believe how many crazy things yeah. these people talk about. And, well, I didn't know from your book that you could see the curvature of the Earth, not from the plane window, but from the pilot's cockpit. Yeah, how about that one? 40, 50,000 feet, the pilots can see it, but your little that's tiny great. window can't. That's great. Aha, proof. But if you if you, wrote, you flew the SST back then, you could see it from your regular window because they flew at yeah. 60,000 ah, feet. and your dad yeah. drew it. Yeah, yeah dad drew it. They like never that. built the plane, though. <laughs> I want to see those drawings. Hey, thanks, Don. It's been a blast. And uh, keep buying those Ray Troll t-shirts. Right. It's been an honor to have some of my art in some of your books. I appreciate so. it. Yep. Thank you. All right. All right. So thanks, thanks Don. Take care. Bye-bye. That was great. That was a great interview. That was great. He, I can't believe how he knows everything about everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a uh, great mind. And uh, thanks. You, you actually did a lot of homework. You dove deep in a lot of stuff. He's prolific, like you wouldn't believe. Uh, but, you know, I think the thing that really I came away with is uh, he is willing to take the, the heat and step into uh, debates, four-hour-long debates, four-hour yeah. debate with creationists way back in the day. And and uh, I used to have those uh, I used to have those debates in college. In fact, <laughs> I once had back then we called them Jesus freaks uh, back in the 70s. They really would just pester you with their Bibles. And have you let Christ into your life or not? I mean, it was full on. And at the time, I had this little thing where I kept flash paper at all times being a magician. Flash paper is the stuff you ignite with a cigarette, and it makes this huge flame. No ash, no smoke. Ah. Magicians use it all the time. Uh -huh. And so uh, these guys were bugging me, and I kept saying, hey, I I'm, I'm the devil. You don't want to mess with me. And they're going, don't even say the devil. M mentioning his name invokes his presence. And I said, dudes, just look, I want to go talk to my friends. Get away from me. No, you left to let. I mean, they just were on me. I said, I'm going to throw a fireball at you. Yeah, sure. And I did. <laughs> I threw a fireball at these guys. <laughs> You would not believe their faces, and they left very quickly. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, hey, it's not like we have a real problem with religion on this podcast, right? I mean— No, everybody can believe what yeah, you want to believe. I just want to make sure. You know, I was, I was raised uh, Catholic, and I like to think I'm a possibilian. There's still possibilities. But, yeah, no, it's interesting. There's 
fundamentalist degrees of religions that get very, you can't argue facts. And, you know, Don takes... No, people, you can't argue um, facts. And religion is a myth. And I'm going to say that. So if you want to write in to uh -oh, our website uh -oh. and complain about me saying that. Oh, dear. Okay. There we go. And, uh, you know... And you, Ray, what are you going to say? Are you going to dispute that? Well, I just know that I'm... There's the sexy and the stupid... Catholic, Ray. Sexy and stupid, and I'm the, you know, sexier <laughs> part of this. I don't know. I don't know, Dave. I don't know. But, you know, it's fun. I We have intellectual discourse on this, and we have people who do take strong positions. But, you know, science is science, man. Science is science. And and you should be dispassionate uh, and, you know, let the facts speak, you know? That's one thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and Prothero is doing that. And uh, he has made me think that, you know, I've only done 10 books and he's got like 40 plus. And uh, I feel diminished. I need to get out there. Okay. So uh, this is going to play way, way, way after your birthday, which is on Thursday. Uh, that's when we're recording this. We're recording this March 2nd. Wow. Your birthday is March 4th. We're time traveling as we speak. And uh, we'll be time traveling. So if anybody wants to give Ray a belated birthday on our uh, website, there is a contact information on PaleoNerds. You can ask us a question. You can go to Facebook if you are uh, interested in us interviewing a favorite paleontologist or scientist. If you have a problem with anything you heard today, let us know. We want to hear everything. Actually, let Dave all. know. I'm sensitive, so don't. <laughs> yeah, let me know. Ray is sensitive. I am Ray sensitive. is the beautiful artist. I and, cry uh, a lot. I, I, I pout. It's a deep well, man. It's a deep well. That's where it all comes from, Dave. Uh, as I said on Facebook, you are R. Crumb meets M.C. Escher. Uh, you are really just prolific. Alfred E. Newman, Mad Magazine. He was my guru. I blame it on Mad Magazine. Well, it's been great. And dinosaur books. So, hey, man, fun as always, David. And um, Okay, uh, saying goodbye from uh, Cougar Town mm. here in Ojai, California, where you got to leave your goats he locked his goats up last night, so uh, he'll probably be doing that for the week. Oh, he should put little bells on the uh, goats so you can hear them all the time. And when the cougar gets them, the bell stops. Yeah, that's right. For whom the bell <laughs> stops. Signing off from beautiful Ketchikan, Alaska. By the way, I am a cougar. I graduated from WSU in 1981, so I'm a coug. Go coug. WSU. That's right. WSU, you mean? Washington State University. Oh, in right. Washington. They're, they're the home of the cougars, right. the fighting cougars. So I'm a cougar, but signing off from Ketchikan, Alaska. Beautiful Ketchikan, Alaska by the sea. I, Raymond Troll, say goodbye to you, David Strassman. And I, David Strassman, a self-professed paleo nerd, say goodbye to you, Raymond Troll. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd.